heard Song of Solomon chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. The Bible says, Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals there are, thereof are coals of fire, uh, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would other, utterly be contemned. And so tonight we'll look at an overview of the book of Song of Solomon. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, as we seek to understand. And Lord, I pray that tonight what would happen is our appetites would be uh, wet for what you have for us in this book over the next several months. And Lord, um, help us to be challenged by what we hear this evening. And help us to leave here with a commitment, uh, Lord, that we'll walk in wisdom. We'll walk with you. We'll walk with purity. Uh, And Lord, we'll be who you created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, I wanted to share with you all some one-liners about marriage. All right? And so uh, if you find them funny, laugh. If you don't, smile, all right? Uh, help, help me out here a little bit, okay? All right. The best way to get most husbands to do something is to suggest that perhaps they're too old to do it. Good way to get men up and moving. Um, a, a good wife always forgives her husband when she's wrong. Said nobody. Um, I was married by a judge. I should have asked for a jury. You should never go to bed mad. You should stay up and fight. Um, I think men who have a pierced ear are better prepared for marriage. They've experienced pain and they've bought jewelry. All right? Socrates, my favorite, Socrates the philosopher said, he said, By all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you will become very happy. If you get a bad one, you will become a philosopher. And that is also good. (laughs) I guess Socrates didn't marry well, so uh, he became a philosopher. Um, The book of Song of Solomon, all right? Uh, 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 Solomon obviously wrote the book of the Song of Solomon, known uh, also by the name Song of Songs. And what is the book of Song of Solomon? It is an opera. What is an opera? It is a music set to a play. All right, Brother Tom told me, he said, we should get some people up here to to, uh, act out the book and sing in an operatic voice. And I said, if we did that and we live-streamed it, we would be a hit not because it was good, but because of how awful it was. And I told him he could have the lead role and do the singing, and, and he didn't want to have anything to do with that. But um, Solomon wrote the book, and uh, here, here's what I want you to know up front. Uh, Solomon wrote three books we find in the Bible. He wrote the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the book of Song of Solomon. Now watch this. Uh, Solomon wrote Proverbs as a young man, with strong convictions. He wrote the book of Proverbs as a young man with strong convictions. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes as an old man with great regrets. You with me? Proverbs as a young man with strong convictions. Ecclesiastes as an old man with a whole lot of regrets. He wrote the book of Song of Solomon as a middle-aged man with great recklessness. He was living a life with great recklessness. When he wrote this book, he was in the middle of making a mess out of his life. And I'm going to show you that from Scripture here in a minute. Um, let me give you a summary of Solomon's life. Take your Bibles over to 1 Kings chapter number 3. 1 Kings chapter number 3. And I'm going to show you sort of the uh, progression, maybe a better word would be digression, of Solomon's life and how uh, he, he really made a mess of things. First Kings chapter 3, and look at verse number 5. Here we find a very young Solomon, and he's taken over daddy's um, uh, throne, 
and he is scared out of his mind. He's in over his head, and so he goes on a retreat to try to get all of this sorted out. And we see here that a young Solomon chooses wisdom. Look at verse 5. The Bible says, In Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. Now imagine that. You're um, on a, a, a spiritual retreat, and you're in deep in prayer. We see a few verses earlier, he made lots of sacrifices, animal sacrifices to the Lord. And all of a sudden, God comes down to him, and almost like a genie came out of a bottle and said, What do you want? Name one thing, and I'll give it to you. Verse 6, And Solomon said, Thou hast shown, or showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude." You see the overwhelming sense that he has. He says, I am but a child. I don't even know how to work, work my way around the palace. Uh, I, I get lost in my own palace. I've got more people to lead than I know how to lead. I, Lord, I need your help. Look at verse 9. He says, give therefore thy servant, here's his request, an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able uh, to judge this, thy so great a people? Uh, so he says here, Lord, I want you to give me an understanding heart. Another way to word that is he asked the Lord for wisdom. And boy, did the Lord give him wisdom. He gave him, the Bible tells us Solomon would be the wisest man ever to walk the earth. Uh, have you ever read through the book of Proverbs and you get one or two verses in and you're already, your mind is just uh, full of just trying to comprehend those first couple of verses. And then uh, if, you, if you do like I do, you're reading through a chapter of Proverbs and eventually your mind just starts to glaze over because there's just so much there, you don't know what to do with all of it. And all of that came from the heart of Solomon. He was a wise man filled with wisdom, and that wisdom would be a two-edged sword in his life, as we'll see uh, here in a minute. God would not only give him wisdom, but God would give him peace on every side. Solomon would never have to worry about a military conflict. Uh, he would give him uh, a long life, and he would give him great wealth and riches. And so Solomon was a man of great means because God had given him great wisdom. Let me show you what I mean. Look at chapter 4, 1 Kings 4, and look at verse number 29. 1 Kings 4, and look at verse 29. The Bible says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding, and wisdom and understanding exceeding much, and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. Another way of saying that is, you could not quantify the wisdom that God gave to Solomon. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, uh, than Ethan the Ezraite, uh, and Haman, and uh, Chalcol, and Darda the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all nations round about. And he spake 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were a thousand and five. And uh, look down at 33. We'll read through the end of the chapter. And he spake of tree, and he spake of trees from the cedar trees that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. He spake also of beasts and of fowl and of creeping things and of fishes. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth, which had heard of his wisdom. God took wisdom from heaven. He put it in Solomon's head. And Solomon instantaneously became wise. He became famous. And people from all over the world flocked to him to hear what he had to say. Uh, look with me at chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. And look at verse number 1. 1 Kings 10 and verse number 1. 
The Bible says, And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame uh, of Solomon uh, concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices, and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. Uh, There was not anything hid from the king, which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom in the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers in their apparel, and his cupbearers, and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. She's totally overwhelmed by the professionalism, by the display of wealth, by the display of knowledge. Uh, It is far beyond anything she expected. Her hard questions have been answered. Verse 6, And she said to the king, It was the true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom, howbeit I believed not the words until I came, and my eyes have seen it, and behold, the half was not told me, thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. She said, I thought that it had been exaggerated how great your kingdom was. And when I got here and I saw it with my own eyes, what I come to realize is it was greatly understated. Exaggeration wasn't the problem. They understated how great it was. Look at verse 7. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceeded the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men. Happy are these thy servants, uh, with, uh, uh, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king an hundred and twenty talents of gold and of spices, very great store, and Precious stones, there came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And so we see here very early on in his ministry uh, that he is impressive. He's impressive with what he knows. He's impressive with the architecture that he's put himself in. He's impressive with the spirit of his servants and the spirit of his household. And things are orderly and things are together and there's glitz and there's glamour and there's excitement and things were going his way. Look at verse 18 of 1 Kings 10. The Bible says, Moreover, the king, the king, speaking of Solomon, made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the best gold. Now we begin to see the vanity beginning to set in. The throne had six steps, and the top of the throne was round uh, behind, and there were stays on either side on the place of the seat, uh, and two lions stood beside the stays. Can you picture the ivory throne and the lions that are there? Verse 20, and 12 lions stood there on one side, and on the other, upon the six steps, there was not like made in any kingdom, one lion for each tribe. Uh, verse 21, and, and all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon uh, were of pure gold, N- none were of silver. It was nothing accounted of in the uh, days of Solomon, for the king had uh, at sea a navy of, of, of Tharshish, uh, which the navy, uh, with the navy of Hiram, uh, once in three years came the navy of Tharshish, uh, bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. He exceeded all the kingdoms of the earth. You can see that he's filling his life with luxury items. He has incredible wealth. I saw somebody one time take uh, what the Bible describes as the wealth of Solomon and quantify that into U.S. dollars, and it was like quadruple or five or six times the richest person uh, that had been currently living at that time. I believe at that time Bill Gates was the richest man when that was given number was given out. But it was some astronomical number that no human being in America will probably ever, ever even come close to. He was very, very wealthy. Well, what happened to Solomon? You see, he had great wisdom, but that wisdom became his ruin. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. The Bible says, But King Solomon loved many strange women, 
together with the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, speaking of marriage. For surely they will turn away your hearts uh, after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. Now, a quick comment here. Why did Solomon marry so many women from so many different countries? It is believed the reason why Solomon did this, it was an attempt to make sure he kept peace with the kings of the world. You see, if you marry the daughter of a king of another country, it sure makes it a whole lot harder for them to come in and attack you. Because you have their daughter in your palace. And so he married women from all of these kingdoms in part as a strategic move to keep peace for Israel. But he fell in love with these women, and these women turned his heart from God. How bad did it get? How much polygamy did he live in? Look at verse 3. This is insane. And he had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. What was a concubine? A concubine was a woman that a man would keep around just for the purposes of sex. I know that's not pleasant, that's not fun to talk about, but that's the reality of it. He had a house of 300 women just for the sake of sleeping with them. And uh, he was a powerful man. He was the richest man in the world. And he could have whatever he wanted. And that's what he wanted. And that's what he got. And by the way, the women that joined that crowd, we'll see when we get into the book of Song of Solomon, were there gladly. They wanted to be there. It was a pleasure on their part uh, to get to be part of this harem, this group of women that he could walk in and pick from any time he wanted. Uh, they weren't there by force. They weren't there by slavery. These women wanted to be part of Solomon's harem. And so he had 700 women he was married to, and he had 300 women he kept around for his own sexual pleasure. All right? Now, I've I got to say that um, being married to one woman is a joy. I love my wife. I'm very thankful for my wife. I can't imagine having a thousand pair of pantyhose hanging over the shower. I just can't imagine that. I wouldn't want to have anything to do with that. That's insane. That's way too much. Solomon way overdid it. In fact, nowhere in the Bible does God endorse polygamy. Nowhere. There are places where uh, he, he, uh, he allows it or he permits it, but nowhere does he give his stamp of approval or endorsement on it. Solomon should have only married one woman, but we see he had a thousand women who he had a marital-type relationship with. Look at verse 4. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, and was uh, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after, and this is awful, he went after Asheroth, the goddess of the Zidonians. Who is Asheroth? Asheroth was the uh, goddess, god or goddess of fertility. This was the god or goddess of sexual fertility. And we now we see he's pursuing uh, a god or goddess that is about sexuality, fertility. Uh, the goddess of the Zidonians. And, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, and Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build in high place for Chemosh, uh, the abomination of Moab, and the hill that is before Jerusalem. Look here, this one's the worst. And for Molech, you all know who Molech is. This is the God where they offered up infants in the hands of that God. They would burn to death in the hands of that God. The Bible says that uh, the, he, he, he uh, built in high place for uh, Molech, the abomination of the children of Amnon, and likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. Can you see the digression in Solomon's life? Can you see how he started out a humble servant of God? He became rich and powerful because he asked God for wisdom. And then that wisdom ended up being his demise because he had wisdom apart from God. Boy, we see a struggle here now. What is the point of the book? What is the point of the book of Song of Solomon? Let me just tell you right now what the point of the book is here, okay? 
Solomon is telling us in this book, don't do like I'm doing, but rather as I said to do in Proverbs. Don't do like I'm doing, do like I said to do in the book of Proverbs. The way Solomon behaves in this book and the way he told us to behave in the book of Proverbs are diametrically opposed. Now, let me just ask a question tonight, if I could, and if you could participate with the raised hand, if it applies to you. Who in here has done any reading or studying or has any sort of concept of the book of Song of Solomon? If that's you, would you just hold up your hand for me? Anybody here have any concept? My wife, Brother John, a little bit. Okay, Miss Kelly. All right. So what I'm going to show you tonight, I hope will lay the groundwork for the rest of the Bible study, because this book, uh, for certain reasons, can be a little bit confusing. I pray that when we're done with the Bible study tonight, it'll be less confusing, and then you come week after week, and it will become crystal clear as to what it is, okay? So let me, do, let me encourage all of you to do this, that are going to be here for this Bible study. Bring a Bible with you that has large margins. Bring a Bible with you each week that has large margins. Here is why, all right? Here's why the book of Song of Solomon is confusing because all of who is saying what is jumbled together. It doesn't say Solomon said and then what he said, and then the Shulamite girl said and then what she said, and the shepherd said and then what she said. All of it is jumbled together, all right? It's like if you were to take one of Shakespeare's plays and remove all of the names and take all of the lines and just publish them one line after the other without any break of who is talking when. You see how that could be confusing? And so what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to tell you over the next several months as we go line by line through this who I believe is speaking when. Now, I might get to heaven and find out that I'm dead wrong. All right? And I will say up front that this is my best guess, and it's not mine, all right? People much smarter than me have gone through and figured this out, and there are different opinions on this out there, and you're free to go look at the various opinions. I'll share some of them with you here in a few minutes. But in my strong opinion, I'm going to give you who speaks when, and I may get to heaven and find out I was wrong on a couple of lines or a couple of words. I believe what I'm going to give you over the next several months you'll find to be very, very accurate. So what I want you to do is bring a Bible, uh, maybe bring three or four different colored highlighters, and you can highlight uh, uh, in different colors based on who's speaking or write in the margin who's speaking when and mark it in your Bible. So I would encourage you to bring a Bible with large margins. Okay, let me jump into the outline here. Uh, we're going to run through this quickly. I don't have a whole lot of comment other than the outline, uh, so I believe we'll get through the whole thing here. But let me give you uh, several thoughts about the book tonight by way of introduction. Number one, notice the opposing perspectives of the book. The opposing perspectives of the book. Look at Song of Solomon, chapter number 6 and verse number 8. If you could turn over there. We're going to read that verse in just a minute. But uh, turn over there and just hold your spot. The, the, there are two perspectives on the book, okay? And one is far older than the other. And if you know much about the book, uh, maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've read some of the commentaries in the Schofield Bible or some other Bibles in, in there, and it's given you an idea. All right, first the old view, the old view. Here's the old view. Solomon is a representation of Christ, and the girl in the book is a representation of the church. That's the old view. I don't hold to this view. That's the old view, that throughout this dialogue, Solomon and this girl are going back and forth, and the dialogue is between Solomon who represents Christ and the girl that represents the church. All right. The new view, the new view is this. Now, this is very different. The new view is that Solomon represents Satan. The girl represents the church. The shepherd in the book represents Christ. And the harem, or that pool of young ladies that are married to or attached to Solomon, the harem, uh, they represent the world. The world, all right? I'd encourage you to write that down somewhere. Leave it up there for a minute, Brother Joe. Solomon is a picture of Satan. The girl is a picture of the church. Uh, the shepherd in the book is the fiancé to the girl. And uh, he represents Christ. And the harem 
the harem represents the world. That's the new view. That's the view I'm going to run with. Now, I, I've done some digging and asking and, 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 and researching, and unfortunately on the Internet, there's not a whole lot of information about the new view, all right? Most all the information that you're going to find on the Internet about the Book of Song of Solomon, as far as commentaries go, ascribe to the old view. And when you ask around why people hold to the old view, the number one reason they give is that the new view has only been around for 300 years or so. And the book of Song of Solomon has been around for several thousand years. And my uh, rebuttal to that is very simple. Um, the Bible became available in large mass to the English-speaking people, or really to the people of the world, about three or 400 years ago. All right? And when it did, commentaries began to flow out as more and more people had access to the Bible. Prior to that was the Dark Ages, and the average person couldn't get their hands on the Bible. So as mankind have gotten their hands on the Bible and have read it and studied it and gotten a keener understanding of it, you've had more accurate views come along. By the way, the Book of Song of Solomon isn't the only thing of this sort. There seems to be this attitude that the the, the, the theologians from the reformer area were way smarter than people of today's era. And they may have been smarter, but I have to tell you, there's been some working out of doctrine that's happened over the last several hundred years. And for sure, we have more clarity on doctrine now than Martin Luther had back in the 1600s. Just by the fact that we've had more time to work through things. And so... The new view, I think as we the, the book unfolds for you over the next uh, several weeks, you'll see uh, that, uh, that that is the case. Let me give you uh, here a couple of reasons why I don't believe the old view to be accurate. If you run with the uh, idea that Solomon represents Christ, you run into a major problem if you want to say that the girl represents the church. And here is the problem, all right? You have two types of love. Uh, um, or rather, you have the type of love that Solomon has for the girl, and that love is eros, eros. And the word eros is an old Greek word, or rather a Greek word that means sexual love. Now, if you want to run with the idea that Solomon represents Christ, then you have to run with the idea that Solomon, make, or rather that Christ makes sexual overtures at the church. And I'm sorry. That's not the type of love that Christ has for the church. Christ has a love that is an agape love. That's a divine love. Um, you also have a problem because Solomon, when he met this young lady, already had 140 wives. Look at chapter 6 and verse number 8. The Bible says, These are three score queens. Now, a score is uh, 20. And so um, three score, hold on here. Yeah, that, uh, so that would be uh, 60 and four score concubines, 80. 60 plus 80 is 140. He's already attached to 140 women. And he's trying to make the girl in this book his 141st wife. All right? Um, as far as I know, Jesus has one bride. Just one. There's another problem here. You find throughout the book, Solomon's talk to the girl is just straight up dirty talk. It's dirty. I'll show that to you as we go throughout the book. At one point, he says to the girl that he wants to drink liquor out of her navel. I don't know how you justify calling Solomon Christ. Um, I don't know too many married men that could get away with talking like that to their wife. You know who can get away with talking to women like that? Men who are powerful and rich. That's it. That's it. I don't think that Solomon is a good representation of the Lord in this book. In fact, I think Solomon is a terrible representation of Jesus. So those are the two opposing perspectives. And again, I think as we go throughout the book, 
you'll begin to be convinced and see where I'm coming from. Number two, notice the opera performers of the book. We looked at the opposing perspectives. Notice the opera performers. Again, a song in theater is an opera. A song in theater is an opera. So you have five uh, different uh, parts of the cast here, of the theater, the theatrical cast or opera. Letter A, you have the hero, and that is the shepherd. The shepherd, all right? Uh, that is the shepherd. Now, the shepherd uh, comes along. Um, he's part of a dream that the girl has, uh, the young lady has, um, halfway through the book, and he comes to her rescue at the very end, all right? And he is a picture of Christ, who's our good shepherd. Letter B, you have the heroine, the heroine, and that is the farm girl we find in the book, or the Shulamite girl from the land of Shulam. And so you have the heroine. Uh, letter C, you have the heathen, the heathen. And that is Solomon. Solomon is, King Solomon is the heathen. And then you have the harem. Again, this is the pool of girls uh, that Solomon uh, has already wooed into marrying him. And that's Solomon's uh, spouses or concubines. Solomon's spouses or concubines. So again, the hero, that's the shepherd. The heroine, uh, that's the farm girl or the Shulamite girl. The heathen, that's uh, King Solomon. And the harem, that's Solomon's spouses or Concubine. So those are the different folks who speak throughout the book. And as we go through, I'm going to tell you, uh, highlight these verses or this part of this verse, and here is who is speaking, in my opinion, when. All right, number three, notice the driving purpose of the book. The driving purpose of the book. So when I was a young man, I'd read this book, and um, um, I would scratch my head and say, this book is weird. Why did God give us this book? This just seems so out of line with the rest of the Scripture. Like I said in the introduction, everything in the Bible has a purpose. And everything there is meant for our benefit. And so what can we gain from this book? What's the driving purpose? All right, letter A. This is a book about courtship. This is a book about courtship. Again, go back to Song of Solomon chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. The Bible says, and here in this part of the book, the shepherd and the Shulamite girl uh, are getting married, all right? They're getting married, and then in the end of the book, they go off on their honeymoon. But look at verse 6. It says, Set me as a seal uh, upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arms, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals there are, uh, thereof are Coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be contemned. And so this is a book about courtship. We'll see here the importance of purity in courtship. If you're here tonight and you are not married... Um, or you're listening to this online and you are not married, God has much to say about you maintaining purity throughout your courtship. And we're going to see that this Shulamite girl is consumed with courting her shepherd uh, fiancé and being pure through the process. Letter B, it's a book about commitment. It's a book about commitment. So really quick here, here's the narrative. This Shulamite girl is out in the field working. She's a reject within her own family, so she's forced to be outside and working. And Solomon sees her, and he, he kidnaps her and brings her to the palace. And Solomon comes riding in on a fancy bed of tapestry and coverings, and being carried by many people. And he comes in very assumptive with this young lady. And his first seduction, we'll see in a minute, is one of... Of, um, of great assumption. And he comes in trying to convince this girl right off the bat or assuming that this girl's going to marry him. And she looks different than all the other girls do. Back in Bible times, it wasn't a dark-skinned, uh, skinny girl that was considered pretty. It was a chubby, pasty, uh, uh, pale girl that was considered pretty. Why? Because you were out of the sun. That was a sign of wealth. And you could eat well, and that was a sign of wealth. And Solomon already had 140 women that looked like that. And the Shulamite girl looked different than they did. And he found her attractive. Why? Because she was different than the rest. And so she's kidnapped and brought into the palace, but she is engaged to a shepherd who's outside the palace, and he makes three 
passes at her, trying to force her to marrying him, trying to convince her to marry him, and she stays off his advances each time and eventually is able to escape from the palace, able to connect back with her fiancé, and able to marry her fiancé. And so we see that this is a book about commitment. Look at chapter 2. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 16. Again, all I'm trying to do this evening is whet your appetite for the Bible study to come. Look at verse 16. The Bible says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth me among the lilies. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountain of Bether. So we see here that she says, My beloved is mine. I am his. I am committed to my beloved. Look at chapter 6. And verse number 3. Look at chapter 6 and verse number 3. The Bible says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. Look at chapter 7 and look at verse number 10. Again, she's reaffirming to Solomon that her beloved outside of the palace belongs to her. I am my beloved and his desire is toward me. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. You see that there is a two-way commitment. So this is a book about commitment. Letter C, notice, it is a book about Christianity. It is a book about Christianity. Uh, there are two verses in the New Testament I want to highlight that I believe fit very well uh, with the idea of this book. The first one is First uh, Peter chapter 5 and verse number 8, where the Bible says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Remember, we talked about Solomon had those two lions right next to him. and He viewed himself as a lion. And here he is trying to prey on this innocent uh, Shulamite uh, farm girl. He's trying to uh, uh, assume that she will be with him and marry him. And he's trying to devour. He doesn't care about uh, 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 other romantic love interests that he has. He just assumes that because he's rich and powerful and King Solomon that she'll fall for him and swoon for him. And listen, Satan wants to come at you the same way, and he wants to devour you like a roaring lion and take you away from the purity you're to have toward your God. And so this is a book about Christianity. And uh, 1 John 2.15 tells us, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Satan comes in with his glitz and his glamour, he comes in with his riches and his power and his fame. He comes in with his temptations and to lure you away uh, uh, from uh, a purity with God. James 4, 4, what know ye, or rather ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore is friends with the world is in, enemies with God. And so uh, we're to be very careful not to cheat on God with a world that might be impressive and lure us away. So... Uh, we see, number three, the driving purpose of the book. Quickly, number four, notice the sensual proposition of King Solomon. The sensual proposition of King Solomon. Now, I hope that through this point, I'll be able to convince you that Solomon was not a good representation of Christ. All right? Letter A, notice his first seduction was filled with assumption. His first seduction was filled with assumption. Go back to chapter 1 and verse number 9. Here, Solomon, uh, this girl's been kidnapped, brought into the palace. There she is waiting uh, uh, for him to come in by force. Solomon comes riding in in an impressive way. And notice how assumptive and arrogant he is right off the bat. Solomon says in verse 9, I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. We will make thee borders of gold and studs of silver. We will make thee. See the assumptive talk there? We will make thee. You don't have it yet, but once you become my wife, uh, uh, once you give in and decide that I am the greatest thing since sliced bread, once you are uh, uh, my wife, we're going to give you these things. We see he's assumptive letter B. His second seduction was filled with sexual talk. Look at chapter 4 and look at verse number 1, and we see Solomon being an utter pervert. His power has gone to his head. His sexuality has taken over his senses, and he's 
now trying to throw himself sexually at this girl and talk to her in a way that's dirty to try to convince her to marry him. And I've learned this uh, uh, through life uh, by both being a counselor and being a husband that this type of talk generally doesn't uh, do much uh, for a woman who's pure and godly. Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Behold, thou art fair. Here Solomon is speaking to the girl, the second seduction. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is as a flock of goat that appear from Mount Gilead. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn. By the way, guys, if you want to impress a woman, don't tell her her teeth are, are like uh, a sheep that are, are shorn. Amen? Uh, that must have been a cultural thing from that time. Which came up uh, from the washing, whereof everyone bear twins, and none is barren among them. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is uh, comely. Thy temples are like a piece of a pomegranate within thy locks. He's starting with her face. He's going to begin working downward, describing her anatomy. And remember, he's not married to her. Verse 4, thy neck is like the tower of David, building for an armory, whereon there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Now, Solomon, you can stop right there. You don't need to go any further. You've talked about how pretty your face is. You've described how pretty your neck is. Below that point, it is, it is off limits for you, but he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 5. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins which feed among the lilies until the day break and the shadows flee away. I will get me to the mountains of myrrh and to the hills of frankincense. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. We see he is talking to her in a way that is sexual and provocative. Letter, or letter C, notice, his third seduction revealed his carnal lifestyle. He, uh, after this seduction, she would go and lay down and sleep and have a nightmarish of a nightmare of a dream, and then later on he'd come back to her one more time and uh, one last ditch effort try to convince her uh, to marry him. Look at verse number one. We see Solomon. Uh, revealing his carnal lifestyle. How beautiful are thy feet with shoes, O prince's daughters. The joints of thy thighs are like jewels. The work of the hand of a cunning workman. Thy navel is like a round goblet which wanteth not liquor. There's the wanting to drink liquor out of her uh, 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 belly button. Thy belly is like an heap of wheat uh, set uh, about with lilies. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins. Thy neck is as a tower of ivory. Thine uh, eyes like the fish pools in Eshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Thy nose is as the tower of Lebanon, which looketh toward Damascus. Thine head upon thee is like caramel, and the hair of thine head like purple. The king is held in the galleries. Uh, how, how fair and how pleasant art thou, O love, for delights this Thy stature is like to a palm tree, and thy breasts to clusters of grapes. We see he is talking as though he is hanging out in a strip club. Hanging out in a strip club. This is a man who had sex around him all the time, and had become perverted in the way he saw things and wanted things. And this is a man who was very carnal in his lifestyle. So we see the sensual propositions of King Solomon. Number five, notice the sexual purity of the farm girl. The sexual purity of the farm girl. Uh, she begged the harem. Again, that is the, that is the um, uh, group of girls that were attached to Solomon, had agreed to be married or his concubines. He, she begged the harem not to force the issue, but rather to let their love come around naturally. Look at chapter 2. And verse number 7, we see this as a repeating theme, and, and we see here her patience. Look here, it says, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem. And I'll just tell you to prep you for the Bible studies to come. When you see that phrase, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, what, you, what, uh, uh, what this farm girl is doing is she is addressing the harem. The daughters of Jerusalem are the harem. O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, look here, that ye stir not up nor awake my love till he pleases. She's saying here, I want, I want, she's saying here, I am a sexual being, but I want this act in God's time. Don't get the cart before the horse. Don't rush things. Look at chapter 3, verse number 5. 
I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rows and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love, till he pleases. Let's not rush things. One more time, look at chapter 8 and verse number 4. Chapter 8 and verse number 4. I charge you, O... And she says this as she's departing and leaving the palace. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love, until... He pleases. And so we see here that she begged the harem, don't force the issue. Let love come around naturally. Don't force it. Let it come around naturally. At the end of Solomon's first attempt to seduce, she tells Solomon that her sexuality is for not for him, but for her future husband. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse number 12. Chapter 1 and look at verse number 12. We we see here that uh, Solomon has made his, um, uh, his first pass at her. While the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. Where, what, where's the smell of her perfume going out of the palace and in an attempt to find her fiancé? Verse 13, a bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He, not you, Solomon, he shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. She's reflecting to a time of her honeymoon when she'll be married, when it is uh, uh, in God's time and in the right place. Solomon, not you, but rather he will one day assume that position, not you. Look at verse 14. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of, of camphor in the vineyards of Engedi. And so she's saying to him that my sexuality is not meant for you. It's meant for my future husband. Notice the purity of the conversation between the espoused couple. Turn to chapter 4 and verse number 8. Now here uh, she's having a dream and in this dream she's interacting with um, she's interacting with her fiance and she's wanting her fiance. She's having a nightmare of sorts if you will. Notice how different this conversation is than the conversation between her and Solomon. Look at 4 verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shinar and Hermon, from the lion's den, from the mountains of the leverage. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse, how much better is thy love than wine, and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. Thy lips, O my spouse, uh, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue, and the smell of thy garment is like the smell of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with Pleasant fruits, camphor with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, uh, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living water and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south, blow upon my garden thou, uh, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his present flutes. Uh, fruits. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. I am come into my garden, uh, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh and my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my uh, wine with my milk. Eat, O oh friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O oh beloved. You see the difference there? You see how when he speaks with her, when the shepherd and the Shulamite girl speak, there is a purity in their language. Over and over again, he calls her my sister. Now watch this. If a Christian man marries a Christian woman, then that Christian man is not only a spouse, that woman is also his sister in Christ. His sister in Christ. He respected her enough not to talk about her body in graphic terms prior to their marriage. We see her... We see here the sexual purity of the farm girl. Number six, lastly, notice the grand prize for the pure couple. Look at chapter 8, verse number 5. Turn, turn to chapter 8, verse number 5. Here we find their, their wedding, their marriage. It says here, Who is he 
Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I raise thee up under the apple tree. There thy mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that uh, bare thee. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his spouse for love, it would utterly be contempt. Look down at verse 14. We find them uh, uh, heading out for their honeymoon. The Bible says, Make haste, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or to a young heart upon the mountains of spices. And so we see them heading off on their honeymoon. And they, uh, she, she survived the kidnap. She got away from the palace. She got back uh, with uh, her, uh, her beloved. They were married and they got to enjoy uh, a time away in honeymoon. Now watch this. You and I belong to the Lord. And one day He's going to come back and get us and save us from what would appear to be a kidnapped world in Satan. And so there's a lot of application here. I, one last thing I'll say before we close. I'm almost done. And that's this. Why would Solomon write this book? And I've asked myself that question. Here he is, and he lost. He wanted to make this woman his wife, and she ignored his advances. And she got away. Women didn't tell Solomon no. If you have a thousand wives, you have a whole bunch of women who want to be with you. Women didn't tell him no, but she did. What was his motive in writing the book? And here's what I've come to the conclusion of. I've come to the conclusion that he wrote the book because he was impressed that she was loyal to her biblical principles. She was committed to purity and to the man who she had fallen in love with, even if it meant living the life of a peasant instead of living the life of a queen. And I would just say this, we'll be focusing on purity, we'll be focusing on commitment, we'll be focusing on Christianity, and uh, we really need this in the society at large. Uh, This is something that's greatly lacking in our world, and I hope you'll commit to be here throughout the Bible study. If you're still not convinced, hang in there, hang in there. I guarantee you, by the time we get through, that I, I, can't, I, can't, I guess I can't guarantee you, but I believe by the time we get through with it, you will be, that um, that's the narrative of the book. Okay, let's stand to be dismissed with a word of prayer. I'm glad you were here tonight. I hope that you are excited about the Bible study to come, and we'll begin in chapter 1, verse 1 next week. Boy, we covered a lot of ground tonight. Let's be dismissed with a word of prayer and ask God to bless us as we go. Lord, thank you tonight for the Bible, and Lord, how every verse... Every chapter, there's something in there for us. And so, Lord, as we embark on this journey, would you help us to um, commit to learning everything you have for us? Help us, Lord, whether we're married or single, to commit to a life of purity in a world that is so filled with impurity. Lord, help us to set lust to the side. And, Lord, help us to be committed and dedicated to you, first and foremost. Lord, give us a good evening. Keep us safe as we go. Bring us back safely on Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. It's a joy to be your pastor. Go tell the world about Jesus. You're dismissed.